Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. Stephen, do we have to talk about Europe? I'm afraid we do. Um, But we have brought along a friend who will enliven this this dark time, which is our Deputy Rotor Anoush Chakalian. Hello. Um, right, so a couple of things have happened. One, we've had the first set of televised debates, and two, the polls have moved in a fairly alarming direction for the Remain campaign. Well, you say the first televised debates, but so far no one's actually debated anyone else, right? So they had... Michael Gove was just... It was just Michael Gove and a studio audience. And then I watched um, David Cameron and Nigel Farage do their sort of same format where they have questions from the audience. When I thought about that, okay, mostly... I didn't really tweet anything during David Cameron's half. He went second because it was kind of just dull. Like, he just played a very straight bat. He was just very smooth and pink and unruffled. Um, Nigel Farage, I... You know, you always have to filter it through the fact that I'm not... Nigel Farage's target audience. Mm-hmm. There was an amazing bit where he said where he had to go at pharma, big pharma, like pharmaceutical companies in the EU, and he said, and, you know, I don't. This guy was a pharmacist who was saying that it was really important for EU wide drug trials to go ahead, and he was like, well, you know, the thing about pharmaceuticals is that uh, they've been very unfair to to uh, alternative medicine makers. And you were like, oh right, that's your criticism of the big pharma. It's not like any of the things that it bad things that it does but the fact that it's not kind enough to people who sell sugar pills and placebos uh okay well that's both nigel farage's biggest strength and biggest weakness i think because he does just busk it like he's gone completely rogue in the past few days because he's been sort of invisible in this in this debate so far um and he's not affiliated to the vote leave campaign so they've just got their heads in their hands because they think he's so toxic but at the same time he sounds like he's saying new things and having fresh ideas and he sounds very confident whereas like you said about david cameron everything's so bland and on, on message. So I don't know how Nigel Farage's, um, the way that he does things will affect what voters think. But I'd, I think it might not be as terrible as the Vote Leave camp um, were worried about. I mean, they told ITV that it was a stitch up. That I've got to say on. that in a, in, a, in a campaign marred by huge acts of tiny pettiness, uh, Vote Leave blowing its top about Nigel Farage. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and that press release that Dominic Cummings uh, Vote Leave authored and put out. And then the fact that they then doxed everybody involved and put their phone numbers on the internet. Put all the BBC producers, political producers phone numbers on the internet. It was so spectacularly man baby, I cannot even begin to engage well, with it. So when I was profiling Vote Leave 
there was a lot of stuff about uh, Dominic Cummings from people who've met him over the years and I couldn't put in uh, just because otherwise it would become a profile of Dominic Cummings. But my favourite, which I think speaks to said they said he's the kind of person who started behaving as, in an eccentric and brusque way because he thought that was a way of showing how clever he was in the early 90s. And now it's just become something <laughs> and he can't, he can't, yeah, he's a, and now it's just become his personality. They said it's a bit like those people who like wear a leather jacket and say they're a proper rocker. Um, I think he's one of the more fascinating, because uh, he, his character in politics, because uh, as you wrote in your piece about the Odd Squad a couple of years ago, he's been involved in, you know, like nasty but successful campaigns, like the referendum on elected mayors. No, it was a Northeastern North Assembly. Northeast Assembly, uh, the No to AV campaign followed exactly this playbook we're seeing now, which is, you know, make up a cost in this case of 350 million pounds and goes to uh, goes to Brussels every week it doesn't uh, and the 75 million Turks who will allegedly um, be soon granted access to the European Union they won't um, but we know that it can work and the polls are a bit alarming although perhaps not as alarming as sterling as the sterling markets are suggesting they are. Okay, well, let's let's take the polls thing head on because the trouble is now everybody's in a situation where if you see a poll that you don't like, you just go, <laughs> but polls, eh? Are the polls completely discredited? Do you think they are herding around a particular solution? Do you think they're not reaching people who are going to vote? Come on, Stephen, tell me. You're the oracle. So, I mean, there are a couple, of, a couple of, of important, and this is kind of going to be a half, sort of several half-formed thoughts about polls. One, they got London basically bob on pretty much every company called london right to within a percentage point or so however and also the historical problem of, of polls in britain being wrong is not the polls are wrong it's in the polls overestimate the labor party mm. crucially they overestimate the type of people who vote for the labor party young people people who live in cities the poor and trans people who are more transient for one reason or another those are all groups of people who are much more likely to vote labor and they're much less likely to be o- more likely to be overpolled which means that Labour has tended to underperform its poll rating, whereas actually most of the Tories have they've tended to get the Tories about right. The difficulty with the referendum is, one, they don't really have a recent referendum to measure against. Referending polling is always as hard as it gets. But also because the coalition of voters that you need to get together to get a Remain vote is basically a little bit like the Tories, a little bit like the Labour Party, and a little bit of some odds and sods from the Lib Dems, and, uh, and then, of course... Uh, Scotland, where the political consensus is overwhelmingly for staying in. It's a turnout game. And uh, Wales is kind of much more against than you might think, right? Yeah, Wa- Wales is... Um, well, so the interesting thing is, Wales is, is actually one of the the stronger Remain areas. I mean, there's a in terms of what the average share is, you're five points more likely to be a, a Leave voter in Wales than you are elsewhere. Uh, whereas Cornwall, who everyone was worried was going to be a big sort of anti-EU region, actually... Uh, all of the information from both sides is in Cornwall is proving trickier terrain for the Leave campaign than they thought and more hospitable for the Remain campaign. Whereas Wales, there's a lot of uh, hostility towards the EU. There are a lot of finger pointing as to why that is. Some people, because there are a lot of people who are working class, left behind by globalisation, which is the classic pattern of uh, voting to leave. It's also not got very many big cities, has it? I mean, there's Cardiff and Swansea, but the north of Wales is is much more rural. Anoush, it's okay, there's a theory going round, and the theory is this, that the Labour voters are the problem here, right? That every Conservative voter in the world now, you know, has heard from people that they're interested in politicians that they nominally like, but that Labour voters are not hearing stuff. And Jeremy Corbyn specifically, who has got, as we know, a big personal following, people are really interested in what he says, has not yet had any real impact. 
because this is the conspiracy theory he doesn't really care about us staying in actually instinctively he's eurosceptic um i think instinctively yes he's eurosceptic and we know that in the past he's voted um against further integration in, into the eu and that he 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 is skeptical about it and that might be why he feels like he can't really take center stage in um fighting fighting it from labor's from the Labour side, but they don't really have an alternative person doing that. Uh, John McDonnell has said a few things about um, us not wanting to have a Tory Brexit, but really it's been the Tories' job to make the left-wing case, I think, because you had John Major's big outburst last weekend about the sort of um, the dishonesty of the Leave camp. And he was talking about how you can't leave the NHS in the hands of the of the Brexiters who who would win the, the election because it would be like leaving a hamster in, in the... In the hands of, like of, of pythons yeah. and, and that is a very that is a, the perfect case that Labour could be making if you care about the NHS if you care about um, services then you should then you should vote to stay in the EU why has it been up to former Tory prime ministers to make this argument why isn't there anyone from Labour um, being more prominent in that conversation and I think I remember when do you remember when Chuka Amuna decided not to run for the Labour leadership mm. He said that he wanted to focus on on the EU campaign. And I know that he has been writing a few things and saying a few things here and there, but he really hasn't been that loud a voice in it. But I want to know whether or not it's a kind of, does a tree fall without, you know, the Telegraph putting it on its front page, did it really happen kind of thing. Mm. Because I, and Stephen, you're probably plugged into the Labour grassroots campaign, things like the phone banking and the canvassing. Because my impression is, yeah, the media is totally focusing on it as a civil war, because civil wars are always more bloody. They're always more kind of interesting. It seemed to me, if you're attacking your own side, then you really mean it. It's not just like, you know, well, the opposition would say that. But are Labour really doing the door-to-door canvassing of their get get out the vote operation? Because I know they were holding back during the local elections because they didn't want to kind of muddy that, like in Wales and and places like that are they now really swinging behind it with their organizational muscle well the thing is it very much depends on uh, on where you are uh, in my part of the world the labor party has been canvassing uh, for 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 stronger in for some time even before the local elections but obviously in my fairly middle class uh, ethnically diverse uh, bit of hackney um that's not to say it's ethnically diverse diverse and middle class it's mostly either ethnically diverse or middle class but um but those are two fairly happy hunting grounds for remain campaigners what's happened in large parts of the country is even where the mp is fairly pro-european the local party's gone oh can we wait we don't want to lose these local elections but now the Labour party is mostly swinging behind it on the ground i mean jeremy is you know potentially a bit of a eurosceptic but the interesting thing about looking through the 1975 election campaign is the conservatives who were almost uniformly pro-European at the top, did not really have a big role uh, in the referendum either. They they did lots of things. But exactly as you say, civil wars are sexy. A largely unified party, eh, not so much. And, I mean, so there are a lot... And last time, Harold Wilson's bacon was saved by Conservatives and Liberal voters. Cameron will hope that will happen in reverse. But the, the big difference is, isn't... What the Remain campaign did last time is they fought a very similar campaign to the one we're seeing now, jobs, security, the economy, all of which are issues which are quite good messages for conservative voters. They are less good if what, what if you are trying to win over more Labour voters, which Cameron needs to do. It's not really clear to me what he has beyond this fear that the Leave campaign will get in, will have a very right-wing prime minister who will eat the NHS, which, I mean, I think is actually a perfectly legitimate fear. And also, ultimately, you know, the poorest in society will uh, bear the brunt of the economic shock 
than Britain would suffer uh, should we vote to leave. But it does put them in the tricky position of uh, of not having a strong Labour right message. But it is mainly than to, than yeah. Uh, well, I just think, so Peter will be our first thoughts writer, who is often not afraid to go ahead against consensus. He's predicting a big win for Remain, right? And this is his theory, is that older people, as we know, are more likely to vote. And actually, in the final weeks of the campaign, things like, you know, what is your pension fund safe from this economic shock? You know, those kind of things. The risk averseness will take over. I'm going to ask you, Stephen, first, because this is why I get to ask these things, so I don't have to answer them. You predict at the start of the year Brexit. Are you still Brexity? Yes, I think I am, actually. Um... So at the start of the year, I said that there would then then the chances of Brexit were much higher because I thought there'd be a migrant crisis. Uh, of course, we are now having eighteen Albanians rescued in the coast. Uh, the navy uh, policing the Atlantic. It's very warm as we're recording it now, which increases the number of people going. I'm having you know you know the weather doesn't look bad. Obviously, I've got ISIS or a failed state in the shape of Libya at my back or a rubbish economy stricken by climate change in the case of Eritrea. I'll try my hands on this boat. That helps the the Leave campaign. I don't think the Remain campaign has a big enough lead in the polls where it still does lead to be certain of that. I think Peter is right that one of the good things about the polls narrowing now is you're starting to see the effects on Sterling. You're starting to see the warnings from the pension uh, fund, which might hit that a bit. But in Scotland, there had been a two-year backdrop of, yeah, if you vote vote for independence, you know, the sky will fall in, which meant that when people started going, oh, actually, maybe the sky will fall in, people went, oh, well, they've been saying it for a while. Six months ago, Cameron was saying he might vote to leave the European Union, um, which means that the fear message uh, is much less powerful and much less effective because it hasn't been... Going on it's not long. something that people have believed for a long time, and you yeah. can demonstrably say that they have. Yeah, and also what you have in in this case, unlike the Scottish referendum, is MPs kind of openly contemplating the, Britain leaving in the EU. We had that story about um, pro-EU MPs wanting to vote to keep Britain in the single market should Brexit arise. And so they're openly sort of planning to, to do these this things. This is how we mitigate it, yeah. and you wouldn't really feel the difference. How to mitigate it, exactly, and use their majority in the Commons to try and um, soften the blow of Brexit on the economy. And I, I remember in the Scottish referendum, people weren't even sort of entertaining the thought. I remember they kept denying, Whitehall kept denying that they were sort of wargaming different scenarios and saying that they didn't have a backup plan because it definitely wasn't going to happen. They're not doing that this time. So while I don't really want to make a prediction, I think you can tell from the people in power and the people who are most in touch with the voters and the arguments that they are really worried. Yeah, I think for me, the most worrying thing is the total reluctance, as per Labour at the last election, to come up with a consistent, credible line on immigration, right? Mm. Either you say, I'm willing to actually go out and make the case that half a million of the EU nationals in Britain are from Ireland. We're not going to... Are we really saying that we're going to send them home? Mm. Like, you know, all the economic benefits of immigration, there are there, but they've just been distributed unfairly. We're going to redress those things. And so, so either you make that or you say, you're right, actually, immigration is a completely terrible problem and we're going to have to find some other way of doing it. But just to kind of constantly going, no, let's not talk about immigration, let's talk about mm. the economy. Yeah. Um, I think it's... I just, I just don't see why someone isn't taking that head on well i can see why because it would be the least attractive job in politics right and and also because labor haven't quite got what i mean jeremy corbyn you could think would be very well placed just to make a kind of happy go lucky let them all come kind of message but but he his part the party still won't quite let him uh, and i think that's a real problem yeah at the moment you only really hear the i mean you don't hear them because no one reports it but the 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 green party making 
the positive immigration case. You don't hear it anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and business as well. Yeah, and places like the FT and The Economist saying, well, yeah. actually, hang on a minute, you know, this is, you know, these people are coming here to work and they are largely contributing and boosting the economy. We'd much rather be the kind of place that is attractive, that people want to come and work in, than an economy that is shrinking and doesn't have any, you know, has huge amounts of unemployment. Mm. Anyway, that's uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you for joining us uh, for this section of the podcast and we'll see you in a few minutes again, Anoush. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. Right, and now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Siren. Hi, George. So we had... The penultimate PMQs before Parliament breaks up uh, for the EU referendum. And Jeremy Corbyn, who's often appeared reluctant to exploit Tory divisions, uh, famously slow after Ian Douglas Smith's resignation when he, he failed to mention uh, the, uh, the former Work and Pension Secretary, uh, took a notably different approach at, uh, at PMQs and challenged... David Cameron to condemn Priti Patel and, and Michael Gove for their comments on the on the referendum. And it did seem that he'd been inspired by Angela Eagle's performance two weeks ago when she stood in for him and she baited the Tories and, 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 and put on very much a, a traditional performance. And it does seem as if Corbyn has belatedly realised that there is political capital capital to be made from the Tories epic splits and um and he's trying to attempt that right and uh how effective was it today cameron parried the blows reasonably well by saying i don't agree with them of course we've had collective responsibility suspended and then he rather exasperatedly remarks aren't we meant to be on the same side essentially um i could be mocking uh labor divisions he said i could have preferred to the uh MP for Birmingham Edge, Baston, who's, who's Labour's Gisela Stewart, who was spinning for, for Nigel Farage yesterday. But let's let's not go there. And so the suggestion is that Jeremy Corbyn is harming the, the Remain campaign by picking on these Tory divisions. Um, but actually what Remain strategists say is that they're quite pleased that Corbyn's trying to differentiate himself from Cameron and is delivering a distinctive message on workers' rights and the threat that uh, what Labour called Tory Brexit would pose to them because that's a way of ensuring that Labour voters, left-leaning voters, turn out on the 23rd of June. And their main concern actually is that the media's coverage of the referendum makes it look like such a Tory-dominated affair, which of course it is in some respects, that Labour voters just feel turned off by the whole thing. Um, In terms of Labour voters not being turned off, uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself is going to be doing a uh, live appearance on Sky uh, three days before the vote uh, in the debate. What's the um, what? Yeah, is there anything you can tell us about that? Yes. So this is going to be his only TV appearance of the campaign. Obviously, just a few days before the vote, and the opportunity for Remain, as I've said, is that it gives Corbyn a platform to deliver his distinctive message. They will see the risks as him rejecting their economic message in part or entirely. In his recent speech, 
he mocked George Osborne's forecast of a post-Brexit recession, saying you can't trust him, essentially, look at everything else he's got wrong. And for a campaign that has staked so much on the economy, um, if Jeremy Corbyn does dismiss that, that is uh, quite a risk. But um, I think for Corbyn, it's, it's, it's an opportunity because if we do vote to remain, it will largely be thanks to Labour voters. Um, if we vote to leave, he can say, look, guys, um, I know um, I've never been a, a great lover of the EU, but um, you know, I did make the speeches, I, I, I attended the rallies. And um, and I've been on TV, so uh, it's 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 not as if I uh, I, I sat it out. Let, let's assume for a moment that none of this works, that Corbyn's appearances don't help, that the the message about the economy from the government and stronger in don't help, and we do leave the EU. Uh, there have been some rumblings this week that pro-Remain MPs uh, will uh, try and uh, keep us in the EEA and other things. Give us some of the background to, to that. Yes, so there is one group among which the Remain campaign are going to win a, a landslide victory, and that's MPs. You have uh, twice as many uh, MPs backing Remain as you do backing Leave. And one scenario is that the country votes to leave, but MPs um, try to keep Britain in, in what's called the single market, which um, Norway and Switzerland, non-EU members, remain in and that would mean crucially uh continued free movement of people and leave have of course made it their key campaign pledge to end that in practice i think a lot of mps would be prepared to accept that leave have mandates for withdrawal from the single market but if the post-brexit economic hit is of is of the severity that some suggest then they may feel it's necessary to fight to keep Britain in the single market at all costs. One option available to the next Tory leader, who would almost certainly be elected soon after the referendum if David Cameron loses, would be to hold an early general election to seek an unambiguous mandate from the public um, for single market withdrawal, for ending the free movement of people, for ending EU budget contributions. Um, and there are lots on the Labour side who are actually contemplating that this may be the way that um, they achieve their aim, their wish of uh, getting rid of, of Jeremy Corbyn, either in advance of that election or after it, when they fear Labour would suffer um, a significant defeat. And on that cliffhanger, it's by... Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. From the lobby. And now we're joined by our deputy web editor, Anusha Kalian, to talk about musicals. Um, and there is, a, there is a news hook, such as it is for this, which is that the uh, Grammys are coming up. I'm going to say Grammys or Emmys. Uh, who knows really? Tonys. What yeah, them. Something. Uh, an award that ends in Y is coming up. Uh, and Emmys Hamilton... are for drama. Thank you. I don't know why I've decided to be really hit up about this. Sorry, as you were. All right, carry on. <laughs> but anyway, oh. uh, Hamilton, which is... Um, a really interesting example of a, a smash hit news musical, which is on Broadway at the moment, is hopefully coming to England next year. And it tells the story of one of the founding fathers who kind of came from absolutely nowhere. And one of the things that it does is revolutionary. Obviously, first of all, it's, it's a rap and hip hop musical, but 
almost cast on, on non-white. So it just recasts everybody in history as if they were non-white. I'm just going to play you the beginning because it's a, it's a musical that doesn't have an overture, right? It just goes straight into this. Son of a whore and a Scotsman Dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean By providence impoverished and squalor Grow up to be a hero and a scholar And that's probably give you a good idea about whether or not Hamilton is for you because it's got this brilliant kind of lolloping kind of hip-hop beat where things move forward with this kind of really interesting inertia. And so I think it, what it does musically is really interesting. I've never heard a musical that sounds like this. But it, you know, but it also went made me read the Wikipedia page for Alexander Hamilton, and they've given away I think ten thousand tickets to school children and school children from like hard New York schools where they like shoot each other in the, you know in recess, uh, who probably wouldn't have gone to go and see something that they would see as being kind of lots of people tap dancing, right? So that's my nomination for a really interesting musical. Is Anoush, tell me what you think is a is a musical that people should go and listen to the soundtrack to or go and watch on film. I think if people, generally people who don't like musicals or are cynical about musicals um, should watch Cabaret, I think, because it's not only is the music excellent, it's just not your classic musical. It's really, really dark. And the content in it, I mean, you have sort of Nazis beating people up and, and thugs outside this sex club and, and you know, gays and, and sex. And it's all quite dark. And, and also it's very political as well. So I think if, if if you think of musicals as sort of a happy, clappy, jazz hands kind of genre, then go and watch this because it will completely change your mind about about what they're like. And I think West Side Story is similar. Um, you have sort of like these outcasts. Um, it's about wars on the gang wars on the streets of New York. Um, and it deals with um, discrimination and and politics. Well, one of the ways I think that West Side Story still feels quite modern is G. Officer Krupke. So that's a, it's kind of sung in around and it's basically, it's the story of a young delinquent and all the authority figures he goes to and the different, you know, like different advice that they give him. And it's not kind of quite politically correct because some of them say like, you know, you've got a social disease and then some of them sort of say, you know, that, they, you know, it's all the excuses basically that he gives to Officer Krupke about why he's no good. And then that's the refrain is like, you know, deep down inside him, he's no good. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's also an, an example of how um, musicals can deal with quite dark issues. Um, so they talk about him being psychologically disturbed. And, psychologically and, yeah. Disturbed. Yeah, exactly. and it is quite politically incorrect now. But I mean, you do still get those sort of people who um, uh, you you still get those arguments about whether or not someone's the way they are because of society, or whether or not it's something in themselves, or is, is it is it from their parents or how they are brought up, which is also dealt with in that song. Can you remind me because I I've seen Cabaret twice, but now I mostly just listen to the soundtrack. Oh, so do I. Yeah. So it's based on Christopher Ishwood's "I'm a Camera," right? Which is his memoir of being in the Berlin in the 1930s. Yeah. That's so right. it's Sally Bowles is a cabaret singer. What's the? How do the Nazis? I know the Nazis come into it, but can remind me exactly how the Nazis well, come into it. It's set in Berlin when the Nazis are on the rise, and so you have um, this very glamorous life that the the, the lead characters lead in the Kit Kat Club, which is the sex club. Um, but then it's also in, interspersed with um, quite sinister scenes about Nazis um, coming to power, and you have the Nazi youth song in it. Actually, um, the song "Tomorrow Belongs to Me." Well, when I went to see that with Anna Maxwell Martin as Sally Bowles, they mm. had, you know, and they cast it very deliberately. The guy from "Gimme Gimme Gimme" was the MC, and they cast it quite deliberately with all the people in the club being quite dark-haired. And then you had all the blonde Nazis. They did that naked. If you've ever haven't seen people <laughs> high kick naked, let me tell you, you haven't lived. Um, but which, but then, yeah. I'm always against nudity on stage. I've actually, I don't like it either because it's really distracting. Because you end up having to think really hard about not 
looking at their penises. Well, I agree. It's a bit like bringing a live animal on stage. It always just yeah. makes always everyone cool. stop concentrating. No, and just seeing like. And I mean, I think, and even worse is when it's nudity with an animal and if they're undressing on stage. Because there's the one comforting thing about people undressing on stage is you realise in all of those times you've made a hash of undressing slightly in front of someone, everyone does it, even award-winning actors. But there's always an awkward moment when they're not quite naked, not quite clothed, the whole, the grammar of the scene as it was yeah. has ground to a halt and we're all just watching a naked person or an animal. Animals, are, I mean, yeah, we, yeah, I regular listeners know my feelings about animals. <laughs> um, naked animals are the worst. Just animals in general. But, but yeah, but I guess in a dance number it's kind of okay because it's it's about spectacle anyway. It's not like that's taking you away from this really nuanced scene. It's, yeah. a, it, you know, the song is inherent and part of it. But uh, yeah, I... I I really like Cabaret, and one thing I would suggest that people go and do is go and have a look at some of the different versions, because it's really, one of the things I really love about musicals is the way that different casts interpret them differently. Mm. And Jane Horrocks is playing of Sally Bowles, particularly her, the way that she does the song Cabaret. She does it in this really genuinely anguished way, as if she's having a breakdown, rather than the kind of classical Liza Minnelli, which is much more saucy, I guess. Yeah, it's saucy and it's ballsy, and it's a bit sarcastic, but it's also sort of like, you know, forget about life. You can't change anything. Let's go and have fun. Whereas I can imagine it, the lyrics of the song, again, quite dark. Yeah, can start be by admitting from cradle to grave. You know, there, it isn't too short to stay. It is, yeah. it is kind of, it's almost, I'm going to say, Beckettian. It is, though. But, mm. you know, there is a line, a stride a grave and a difficult birth. It's a, that's a Beckett line. So there are kind of echoes of really quite serious things there. Stephen, what is your top musical you'd like to recommend to people? Well, I mean, I'm going to cheat and do two. Because partly I want to say Hamilton. Okay, but you only, I mean, I only told you about Hamilton on Monday, so... Yes, you... but I've listened to it on a loop since then. <laughs> I'm actually midway through write, rewriting the lyrics to be about the New Statesman, so, you know, look forward to the musical episode. How does a special correspondent... <laughs> no, yeah. I can't do it. Um, but, you know, like, so that coming soon to a podcast near you. Avenue Q, actually, I think... Not only is it very witty, it actually does have several songs which talk to fairly universal themes the lament of the arts graduate what do you do with a degree in english um uh that wasn't intended to be an wow. epic level of shade directed at you but i see how it could be interpreted that way yeah um the uh yeah everyone's a little bit racist sometimes uh it's actually a fairly good bit of social commentary um rising from the low like the internet is for porn yeah that's, that's a good song i haven't it's, i haven't seen it it's also it's just it's actually just quite a good song with some quite good musicals i mean my first musical was an old vhs of uh joseph and the technicolor dreamcoat which which i would warn people against re-seeing because after lee mead won any dream will do i went to see his version of it and even lee mead who i have to say on that show his version of paint it black was extraordinary <laughs> Um, I couldn't rescue what is essential. It is a school play. It's just a, it's just a school I mean, play. Also, Lee Mead's no Donny Osmond, is he? <laughs> that is the harshest burden of, of all. Donny Osmond's great in that. I mean, I can't remember. I haven't watched it since I was about 10, but I, you know how He's that... no Jason Donovan. That's who I had in my original cast recording of Jason Technicolor Dreamcoat. Did you have a recording of... I don't remember which, which um, Joseph I like best, but I did love the musical, but I haven't seen it or listened to it since I was in school and I think we sang it in school so I probably agree with you. It's got that terrible Potiphar was counting shekels in the bed below his bedroom that bit that is dang. I just remember the bit with all the colours which was very yeah. exciting for me as a child I oh to try and remember like red it and yellow red and yellow and orange and, <laughs> and, and I think ochre is in there and I remember learning what ochre was so it's very educational I might find it painful to rewatch it because uh, when my voice broke I lost my singing voice uh as listeners may learn if they listen <laughs> to, the end of, to the end of the of episode. This, uh, of the episode. And um, 
so I have actually sung, sung in Joseph and, and sung well in Joseph. I could not sing in Joseph at all now, which would be fair, it's fairly upsetting. I, yeah, I, I feel like you could re. I've fairly briskly rescored quite a lot of musicals to fit my limited vocal range. Yeah. I, I think with a. With a sure, you dare yeah. to dream, Stephen. I'm sure you could sing that Pharaoh rock song. Oh, yeah. It's got a really deep voice and it's supposed oh, the to be Elvis-y like Elvis. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one. That would turn fat cars. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah. <laughs> Rewrite that to be about the Labour Party. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Um, I also would like to give a shout out to Book of Mormon, which is currently on. And I think is a, uh, it's by the creators of South Park, as I'm sure most people know. But um, Grace Dent wrote a piece about it after it came on saying, like, here is a quite a mainstream musical that people are going to see, which is essentially about FGM. And like uh, about efforts to educate people about FGM, um, and I think it's—I uh, just think it's—it's it's incredibly re- like. It, do not go and see it with your family, obviously, unless you've got one of those weird modern families where you swear <laughs> in front of your parents. Playing a clip from this going to jeopardize our universal rating. No, I won't do that. Um, but I will just—I will say that I, you know, I, what I like about it is it—it it, it does that thing that satire has often claimed to do, but it doesn't end up doing, which is that it takes the mick out of everybody equally. So it, it actually, so the story is basically about Mormons get their mission where they spend two years going around trying to convert people. These two ones end up getting sent to Uganda, which they have no idea about like where it is. They kind of go, oh, like Africa, like Lion King. And then get there, discover that all the rest of the Mormons there are like insanely cheerful. They're so incredibly upbeat. And there's a song called Turn It Off, which is about the idea that if you're gay or anything like that, you can just turn it off like a light switch. Just pretend <laughs> it's not happening. Everything is fine. And... And one of them is a compulsive liar, so he ends up blending all his Bible stories with bits of Star Wars. So you would like this. Uh, but they eventually they sing the song called I Am Africa, which I'm just going to play a very small part of. I am Africa. I am Africa. With the strength of the cheetah, my native voice will ring. We are Africa. And as you can see, it is quite taking aim at that idea of a kind of white saviour complex and, you know, like NGOs who think they can kind of go over and and basically sort of sort out all Africa as a kind of country's problems for it. So I would like to make the case that, yeah, musicals can be of interest to people who like politics and... I would like to ask and invite our listeners to tweet us if there are uh, musicals that you think have particularly important political lessons. Perhaps Singing in the Rain has a lot to say about how attractive women are not as good at singing as <laughs> as plainer women and other important life is that lessons. Is what Singing in the Rain is about? Yeah, Lena Le- Lamont is is the one. But I can't stand him. She's great as a silent <laughs> film star and then they try and switch to talkies and she has to sing and she can't sing. That- and, it's, and then they so they get Debbie Reynolds his character to to dub over for her wow there's this whole i have like these huge vistas of musical knowledge which i just know nothing about so um watch singing in the rain it's a really brilliant film and it's got some really it's got some great songs I know, the in last it. time someone told me i was seeing a brilliant film about silent movies i saw the artist and ooh. oh really definitely yeah. don't watch my fair lady again because that is the most unfeminist musical it's got two songs in it one of them's why can't a woman be more like a man and then there's another, there's another one i can't remember the other one but there's another whole sex the whole premise it well. of it is yeah. about kind of creepy over controlling professor henry higgins trying exactly. to like make her not you know change her life completely and then i think 
you know, and Eliza Doolittle comes out at the end of that, certainly in Pygmalion, the play, as being like, well, now I don't belong anywhere. You've ruined my life. I can't go back to being a flower seller, but I'm not a lady. No one will ever accept me as a lady. Like, it's a quite a sad message that comes out of that, that this, this guy thinks he can sort out everyone else's lives. Like Professor Xavier. Yeah, that harks back to a previous episode. And I pronounced it right this time as well, so our listeners will be happy. Thanks for joining us. I know you'll be returning uh, later on in this podcast, um, so listeners can brace themselves for that. And now welcome to a section called You Asked Us to Sing Stephen's Version of American Pie that has now been rewritten to be about the Scottish Labour election problems right and also the late but yeah it's, it's been broadened out but yes a while ago i wrote a song on twitter uh during election night when i was tired like 6 a.m slightly right? giddy yeah uh and many of you have asked us to record it so here it is and anoush shikalian will be joining us once again to play guitar and lend uh, some backing vocals and if you are of a sensitive disposition listeners i would say that there is a content note on this for bad key changes and or people switching the verse halfway through a long, long time ago, I can still remember how Labour used to win the Clyde. They cheered the victory in advance, no other party had a chance, but now there's only morning side. But Indiref made me shiver, with every leaflet I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step And I can't remember if Murphy cried When he heard that we'd lost East Kilbride But something touched me deep inside The day that Dougie sighed So bye-bye to Kehardy's old guys they, they used, used to win by landslides, now they're stuck on Morningside. Now from Harris is a blogger doing consulting on the side, singing what happened to my Glasgow landslide. What happened to my Glasgow landslide? For ten years Cameron's on his throne, a moss grows fat on the headstone, but that's not how it used to be. Now did you write the Chilcot report? And do you think Blair should be in court? And can you teach me how to release it real slow? Well, MacDonald read a book on Marx. Corbin signed apples in the park. A polling ratings getting dark. The day that event sky sighed. So bye-bye to Kehardi's old guys They used to win by landslides, now they're stuck on Morningside Horace is a blogger doing consulting on the side Singing what happened to my Glasgow landslide What happened to my Glasgow landslide We protested war in a summer swelter But now Iraq needs a fallout shelter Drones fly high over Pakistan Joining fee was just three quid They said sign up and so I did Vote Corbyn was the urge But then there came the purge As Harmon tried to cleanse the role The right refused to yield control Corbyn topped every poll The day the Blairites cried 
So bye bye to Kehardy little guys. They used to win by landslides, now they're stuck on Morningside. Now Tom Harris is a blogger doing consulting on the side, singing What Happened to My Glasgow Landslide? What happened to my Glasgow landslide? And the three MPs I admired the most nominated Corbyn, now Labour's toast. They've got no MPs from coast to coast. That is, first past the post. So bye bye to Kihadi's old guys. They, they used, used to win by landslide, now they're stuck on Morningside. Now Tom Harris is a blogger doing consulting on the side, singing What Happened to My Glasgow Landslide? What Happened to My Glasgow Landslide? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.